3: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb.
1: And I am Joe McCormick. And today on Weird House Cinema, we are going to be talking about the 1972 uh, tragic romantic horror film, Blackula.
3: Yeah, yeah. This uh, So this is, in a sense, another Dracula movie. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm generally down for, for any Dracula film. We've covered various Dracula movies already on Weird House Cinema. Most recently... We talked about 1972's Dracula A.D. 1972, in which the Count awakens in contemporary London. Today's movie is also a 1972 release, and it also centers around a vampire prince awakening
1: in the contemporary world. Only this time it's Los Angeles. Is it Los Angeles? I kept thinking that the exterior shots looked like L.A., but then I would see, like, there was a scene at the police station where in the background, I'm pretty sure they had a map of Staten Island on the wall. Well, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I just—I I believed the movie
3: when it told me it was Los Angeles.
1: Well, wait—did the movie even say it was LA? I didn't remember that.
3: Uh, yeah, our um, our character, Doctor Thomas, uh, supposedly works for the Los Angeles Police Department.
1: Oh, okay then. Oh, maybe he's just like a a Staten Island map hobbyist. <laughs> That's up there. I don't know. Um, but you know what? So uh, I th- this movie had been on my radar for many years, but I hadn't seen it, and uh, until you picked it for the show, Rob. First of all, I I really liked it, but second, it's a very different movie than I imagined. I think because the title is a pun, and because mm-hmm. I understood it to be part of the the black exploitation wave. I had always expected it would be more of a satirical horror comedy, that it would be sort of a, uh, a satirical take on American culture from a black perspective, using some uh, using like vampire themes to to get across some of its like uh, comedic observations. But it's really not a comedy at all. Instead, it is a, I think, very serious and very effective, uh, tragic, romantic horror film. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting,
3: and we'll be discussing this a bit, like the the degree to which that transformation seems to have taken place. Because I think the studio initially envisioned something that was more of a comedy and was was more of a more satire and was just about, you know, giving the audience a good time.
1: Uh, But this was transformed by uh, at least two of the key individuals involved, if not more. Also, I have to say the comparison to Dracula 1972 AD is hilarious because Multiple things. So, first of all, I think Blackula is a much better film than that. But the other thing is that we kept joking in that episode that uh, Dracula, nineteen seventy two A.D., did not really put Dracula in nineteen seventy two A.D. He was almost Mm -hmm. like he just hangs out in an abandoned church the whole time and then victims are brought to him so he never encounters modern culture or anything like that and uh, we we talked about the potential for realizing uh you know dracula as a sort of fish out of time character who's running into all of the the texture of the modern world and and having friction when interacting with it you could expect that that blackula could be like that as well but really there is not much fish out of time about it at all. In fact, by the time our our vampire hero arrives in in 1972, he's like the coolest person in 1972. He's like more at ease and at home than anybody who just normally lives their life here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Blackula is a very well-known film in the history of horror and vampire movies and, and certainly has a has this uh, its place in uh, in the history of black cinema. So like yourself, yeah, I've been familiar with it for a long time, but I'd never taken the time to actually sit down and watch it. And and part of, you know, part of that was like I I assumed it was more of a comedy. I you know, I wasn't sure how it might have aged, how it was received, what its legacy was because you know, not everything that is often categorized under the broad label of black exploitation is worth a revisit, but uh, I, I just kept seeing more film um, creators, more artists, more historians, um, especially artists and historians of color, singling it out for its strengths. Uh, one such artist uh, is Rodney Barnes, uh, an American screenwriter and producer whose writing credits include Everybody Hates Chris, The Boondocks, and also the TV series Winning Time on HBO. Uh, he was also apparently, in a, an a, he has an additional crew credit on Blade. I'm not sure what he did on that, but. But still, a mm-hmm. nice vampire connection. Mm-hmm. But uh, I picked up his 2023 graphic novel, Blackula, Return of the King, illustrated by Jason Sean Alexander. And it's really fun. It's a modern sequel to the film Blackula, reawakening um, our, our central prince character once more in contemporary Los Angeles and on a collision course, this time with his vampiric maker. Uh, It's really, again, really good, really fun. And it includes an extended intro in which Barnes describes being a horror fan as a kid uh, and being at the time mostly dependent on a diet of Hammer horror films, which featured predominantly white casts and never a black vampire. Um, so he, he, mentions like seeing the ads for the first time. Uh, I think he says that he saw them, um, uh, during the commercial breaks for Soul Train and, uh, and he was instantly excited as a child. He was like, you know, this, this is something different. This is here. Here is a a case where I get to see, um, like a, a black vampire character in a film. So Blackula, the movie called to him, ultimately helped inspire him to become a creator himself. And, you know, he acknowledges that the film has its flaws, But that its power was undeniable. Now, um, I want to throw in just one quick note about the language in the film. While while the film is rated PG and doesn't really contain anything objectionable in terms of gore or sexuality, uh, we should stress that a a homophobic slur is used at least a couple of times, uh, one instance by a key protagonist, and once in a really unnecessary and hurtful way. Uh, It certainly Ding's enjoyment of the film, especially since there are so many captivating elements of the picture otherwise. Uh, so I wanted to, to single that out. Uh, I was reading a little bit more about this in The Dracula and the Blackula, 1972 Cultural Revolution by Lemon and Browning. Uh, this was published in 2009's Dracula's Vampires and Other Undead Forms Essays on Gender, Race, and Culture. And this article makes a case that, you know, we also see efforts in the movie at challenging homosexual stereotypes, just as the film challenges stereotypes of Black and African characters, though the authors here acknowledge that the film fumbles in this and ultimately, quote, encourage stereotypes and bigotries concerning homosexuality more than they challenged them. So I just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone, you know, was looking to pause the podcast, go watch the film. I think it's just a good heads up to have. Alright, well at this point, let's go ahead and have a little trailer audio. The The actual trailer for the film is a bit long but uh, we were able to dig up the radio spot here. Uh, and uh, I love a good radio spot, so let's listen to the original radio spot for Blackula.
4: You shall pay Black Prince. I press you with my name. You shall be Blackula. Blackula, the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, deadlier even than he. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood, he hungers for your soul. More horrifying than Dracula, the Black Avenger, Blackula, an American International release, rated PG, Parental Guidance Suggested.
3: Now, of note, you that that voice you heard at the beginning—that uh, is the voice of Count Dracula, as we'll discuss.
1: Mm. You know, that raises another way in which this movie, I think, is different than what some people might assume going into it, which uh, you might assume the premise is what if Count Dracula were black, but instead our black vampire prince in the movie is very much set in opposition to Count Dracula. Like, Count Dracula is still the villain. Oh,
3: yeah, absolutely. Uh, a complete and utter villain, but then also one that will not factor into the film directly after um, after just uh, you know a few minutes into the film, really.
1: Yeah, he disappears after like three or four minutes in.
3: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you're intrigued, if you're uh, interested in, in watching this one on your own before proceeding with the rest of the episode, uh, it's, it's pretty widely available. Uh, we watched it on the 2023 Blu-ray from Sandpiper Pictures. Uh, it's bare bones. Doesn't really have anything in the way of extras, but the quality's great. We rented it from Videodrome here in Atlanta, uh, though I believe it's also streaming on Prime and other sources. So, again, you shouldn't have any problem getting a hold of this movie. All right, let's get into uh, the people who made this film. Um, starting at the top with the director, William Crane, born 1949, American director and UCLA film school graduate, best remembered for this film, and, and thus his contributions to black cinema of the 70s, and more broadly, the horror genre itself. Uh, prior to Blackula, he'd worked in TV. He directed a 1971 episode of Mod Squad. Though he apparently worked as an uncredited intern director on the 1970s Sidney Poitier movie Brother John, which also features uh, Paul Winfield. Uh, but anyway, after, after Blackula, he continued to direct episodes of such TV series as Starsky and Hutch, SWAT, and The Rookies, before returning to the world of black-centric horror films with 1976's Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, starring Bernie Casey in the lead roles.
1: Oh, no, I'd be interested to see that one, too.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I saw a bit from an interview uh, with him where he, he he said he he had more freedom in that one. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm interested to read more about it, see how it was received, and potentially watch it. Now, afterwards, he directed episodes of The Dukes of Hazzard, uh, Matt Houston, and Designing Women. There are a lot of interviews with him out there. I ran across one from a this is a 2021 interview on WBBM News Radio with Mike Ramsey. Uh, He says, uh, AIP, that's American International Pictures, they were doing exploitive movies. The rumor was they were in the red, and so they were going to do a black vampire movie. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. The original concept was Count Brown's in town. It was this shucking and jiving, and I didn't want to do it, but they hired me to do this movie.
1: William Marshall said, let's just make this straight. So William Marshall is the actor who plays Memo Wilde, the main vampire in the movie. And yeah, this is in line with what I've read, that he was a big force in reimagining the movie as a more serious, dramatic project.
3: Yeah, according to Lemon and Browning in that article I just cited, uh, when he came on board to star in the picture, he insisted on certain changes to Memo Wilde's character and wrote or rewrote key scenes concerning Mammaldi's 18th century mission to Europe, as well as his connection to his to his wife, Luva. Uh, so he
1: seems to have been heavily involved in the choices that made this film notable. But by emphasizing the tragic romance at the core of it, I don't want to undersell the horror elements of this film. No. Because uh, to come back to uh, like Crane's approach to it as a horror film, I think the scary scenes, though it's not wall-to-wall scares. The scary scenes are quite effective. There are some extremely creepy shots in this movie. Like, uh, it it does a thing uh, a couple of times where uh, a character, uh, like a monster, a vampire character, is just directly approaching the camera. So the camera is at a fixed position and the vampire is just gliding straight into your face. And I don't know, that's not a kind of shot that I think of as very common <laughs> in mm-hmm. horror films. But uh, it, uh, even, even though it seems like it would be, I don't know why it's not, but it's very effective here. Yeah, yeah. you can
3: imagine these scenes really uh, sizzling on the big screen uh, in, in front of a packed house. And it's worth noting that this film was quite a success uh, So uh, and, and certainly played an important part in sort of paving the way for uh, additional uh, black horror films uh, that came out uh, afterwards. Though it's, uh, we should also note, this was not, I think sometimes it, this is described as the like the quote first uh, black horror film, which is not the case. Uh, there, there were earlier examples of this. Uh, the credited writers on this are Joan Torres and Raymond Koenig. Uh, I don't have dates for them. I don't think dates are available, though I believe Joan Torres at least is, is still still around. Uh, this and the 1973 sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream, are their only credits. Uh, Joan Torres has a website, uh, joantorres.com, which details her additional work as a playwright and a novelist. Um, given the subject matter of the film, it's notable that neither of the credited writers was themselves black. But again, the film's black director and black lead evidently like, further crafted the screenplay uh, in
1: this more serious direction. Just wanted to note, you mentioned the sequel, Scream, Blackula Scream, which does also have William Marshall in it. Uh, I don't know anything about the reputation of that movie, but I wanted to note it does have Pam Grier in it. So that's a reason to watch. True, true.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, let's come back to William Marshall. Uh, again, this is our star who plays Prince Mama Waldy, the, the vampire. Um, William Marshall lived 1924 through 2003 uh, yeah, the star of this picture and just an irrefutable central force in the making of the film, um, what it, making the film what it is, bringing dignity, power, and complexity to a character that otherwise could have and likely would have been a much more shallow exercise in vampire horror. Marshall was an American actor, director, and opera singer with impressive credits across stage, screen, and TV. He studied at the Actors Studio in New York and was Uh, And I I believe had some opera training. I'm not as informed about his um, his career regarding opera, but Mm. he performed on Broadway in the late 40s and early 50s. And he played the title role in Othello in both the U.S. and Europe. There's a 1981 production of Othello with him in the in the lead role that was filmed and I believe is available.
1: I'm not surprised to hear that he was an opera singer because he has an absolutely magnificent voice, uh, just a a, a beautiful bass, like a, I'm trying to think what's the a metaphor. It's like a, it's like a ship sailing through smooth water. It's just like an amazing voice. It's it it is. Is the kind of voice that every time he speaks, people just turn and listen.
3: Yeah, it's it's captivating. So his uh, TV credits, he has a lot of TV credits, include a, a second season episode of the original Star Trek. This one was titled The Ultimate Computer, in which he played a brilliant human computer scientist. Um, and then he's—he he may also be a familiar face uh, from his later years for some of you because he played the king of cartoons on Pee-wee's Playhouse. According to his New York Times obit, in 1983, he appeared in a one-hour, one-man show for PBS called Frederick Douglass, Slave and Statesman, and he adapted this for the theater as Enter Frederick Douglass, which he performed for many years. Um, and yeah, he has a whole, whole, whole bunch of credits. Uh, I, I did note that on the old 1980s Spider-Man cartoon, he voiced both the Juggernaut and Tony Stark. Whoa. Uh, in cinema, his other credits include 1954's Demetrius and the Gladiators. Uh, The 1973 sequel, Scream, Blackula Scream, of course. Uh, The 1974 zombie movie, Abby. 77's Twilight's Last Gleaming. And 1994's Maverick. So again, yeah, he's absolutely commanding in this role. You can see how he was such a powerful force on the trajectory of this film as well. First of all, in pushing for these changes... And secondly, according to Crane uh, in that interview I was looking at, in being able to deliver on those changes in such a way that as the dailies or the raw footage was rolling in from the filming, the studio, like, they just followed suit. They didn't fight it because they saw that it was absolutely working. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing
1: us with free samples. Get
3: fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
5: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Jean! Eugene Fodor. Jean was wooden.
6: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
4: So you ride the books, Jean. and have a on the business. I understand now. It is a wise man, uh, Marie is a wiser woman.
6: But be careful and choose your travel partner well. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get
5: down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and its high time. You tell me the truth.
6: Freeze, Americano! Gene.
5: Huh? Oh! Jean! Run!
6: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination.
1: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All right. uh, So moving on to the rest of the cast. Uh, we have a dual role here of Tina and Luva, uh, which we'll we'll get into what that means here in a bit. But uh, these characters are played by Vanetta McGee, who lived 1945 through 2010. American actress who'd been in several films prior to this, including the Italian western The Great Silence. Uh, her subsequent films included 1973's Shaft in Africa and Detroit 9000. Uh, In 1975, she was in the Iger Sanction opposite Clint Eastwood. I believe that was like, uh, like, uh, like she's like second build on that. She's in 1984's Repo Man and 1990's To Sleep With Anger. All right, now playing Tina's sister in 1972, uh, the sister's name is Michelle, uh, played by Denise Nicholas, born 1944. American actress with extensive television credits, including an episode of Night Gallery, Love American Style, Different Strokes, The Love Boat, and 69 episodes of In the Heat of the Night. Her film credits include 77's Capricorn One, 1990's Ghost Dad, and 2000's Ritual. She won a 1976
1: NAACP Image Award for her role in Let's Do It Again. I feel like a big part of Michelle's role in the plot is we have to have somebody who is Skeptical of the vampire stuff because Tina ultimately is going to become wooed by the power of uh, of Memo Walde, and you know she she ultimately is like, yeah, okay, I'll be a vampire because I love you. Um, the character we're about to talk about, uh, Dr. Gordon Thomas, he's pretty much from the beginning is like, I think a vampire could be responsible for these killings. Uh, so Michelle is going to be the one who's like, I don't believe this, and I do not want to go dig up a grave tonight. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. So let's get to Dr. Gordon Thomas because he, he—he's essentially the Van Helsing character of, yes. of, the, of the of the movie.
1: He's the investigator, the the human hero.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he is played by Thalmus Rasulula. Uh, he lived 1939 through 1991. American actor with extensive TV credits going back to 1960 including Perry Mason, the original Twilight Zone, All in the Family, Mission Impossible, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, Kojak, The Incredible Hulk. Uh, He also shows up in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, playing the character Captain Donald Varley. Also notable, uh, he pops up on a 1975 episode of Saturday Night Live, uh, specifically in a skit titled Exorcist 2, in which he plays
1: Father Marin. I like that the the implied comedy is, of this skit is how ridiculous it would be to make a sequel to The Exorcist but then just a couple <laughs> years later they literally did. Yeah. <laughs> um it, of note that episode
3: of Saturday Night Live was hosted by Richard Pryor, uh you know the the great stand-up comedian and the musical guest was was the legendary Gil Scott-Heron. Uh reportedly uh, Prior only agreed to host the show if both of these men were involved. So they were like handpicked. He's like, I'll do it, but you got to bring in Gil Scott Heron and you got to bring in um, Thalmas uh,
1: to be in this skill with me. He's really effective in this movie and he has a... Sort of thankless role to play because William Marshall's character gets to be the vampire, gets to be the tragic prince, and and at the center of this tragic love story. Whereas Gordon Thomas, uh, Thelma Rasulah's character has to be hunting him down and doing so in a like the character is written as a irascible and business oriented man, like he's not fun, and yet it is fun watching the character do what he does.
3: Yeah, I think it's a really solid performance. You know, he's like, he's our grumpy, uh, <laughs> uh, but smooth Van Helsing character. Yeah. All right, this is a minor character, but I also want to call out that uh, Jaitu Kumbuka is in this, playing the character Skillet. Uh, Skillet is a bit comic relief character who really likes Memoaldi's cape. Um, yes. <laughs> but it's a memorable brief part. He lived uh, 1940 through 2017. He was a, a main cast member on the Spy series, A Man Called Sloan, with Robert Conrad and Dan O'Herlihy. Uh, he was in Roots. Uh, he's, uh, his other credits include Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, 1971's Brian's Song, 76's Bound for Glory, 85's Brewster's Millions, and 1989's Harlem Nights.
1: This character appears multiple times to admire Memualde's cape and to comment that he is one strange dude. Yeah, that's his sole purpose here.
3: All right, we mentioned that Dracula is in this movie, and, and we'll discuss the, the way Dracula is envisioned in this, in this film uh, here in a bit in more detail. But uh, Dracula here is played by Charles McCauley, who lived 1927 through 1999, an American actor of stage, screen, and TV whose earliest film role is an uncredited part in Roger Corman's horror comedy, Creature from the Haunted Sea, 1961. We haven't watched this one on Weird House, but it's often considered part of a trilogy of uh, of horror comedies that Corman did, along with uh, Bucket of Blood and uh, The Little Shop of Horrors. Hmm. Macaulay also worked with Corman, credited this time on 1962's Tower of London. His filmography features a great deal of mainstream TV work, along with various entries in the horror genre, On TV, he appeared on two episodes of the original Star Trek, 35 episodes of Days of Our Lives. He was on Mission Impossible, Night Gallery, Columbo, and much more. In film, his credits include 68's Head, 72's Twilight People, 74's The House of Seven Corpses, 75's The Hindenburg, Airport 77, and he played the President of the United States in the 1984 mermaid comedy Splash. (laughs) which is, I haven't seen Splash in a while. Watched it a lot as a kid,
1: but now I'm just imagining, like,
3: President Dracula. Uh-huh. I've never seen it,
1: but now there's a treat waiting for me, if I ever get there.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember it as being fun. Uh, more on Dracula in a bit, but it is, it's a very memorable Count Dracula. Yeah. Um, this is just an aside, I guess, mostly for people who are big into, like, the history of stunt work uh, and or grappling and so forth and pro wrestling, but one of Dracula's henchmen... He is played by gene labelle who lived 1932 through 2022 noted grappler judo practitioner pro wrestler stuntman uh, he pops up in a lot of things often in just like really small roles
1: it is funny in this movie that dracula just has wrestlers working for him like he calls out his wrestlers and they've got the you know the lacy cravats on but they're just like these beefy guys
3: <laughs> all right get a few credits from uh, behind the scenes here um Sandy DeVore is the title designer on this film, who lived 1934 through 2020, American artist, graphic designer, and title designer who worked with some big recording artists uh, of the day, including Sammy Davis Jr., and went on to create title sequences for such TV shows as The Partridge Family. We've actually seen some of Sandy DeVore's work on Weird House Cinema before because he did the excellent title sequence for The Dunwich Horror, Mm. which had a very similar style, only instead of like red- black and white it was like blue and black Mm.
1: yeah i really like the the title design in this movie there it's sort of a uh like an animated bat chasing a red outline of a woman around in this abstract landscape that almost looks like uh you've zoomed in a lot on calligraphy and and the uh, figures are trying to navigate in the spaces between the bars of the letters
3: yeah yeah it's really cool and it's like a nice it it, i like how it breaks up the film too because we have a very heavy opening. And then we get this fun title sequence before transporting to the modern day of 1972. Uh, and I'll also add that there's an excellent website called artofthetitle.com. And they have uh, multiple examples of DeVore's work, including the uh, intros to Blackula and the intro to the Dunwich Horror. He also did one on a 1969 film called Desaad. Uh, this was a Roger, Roger Corman film starring uh, Keir Dooley. Uh, as the Marquis de Sade also has John Houston in it, but it's also like yeah, similar style and also very amusing to watch. Mm. The composer on this film on Blackula is Gene Page, who lived 1939 through 1998, American composer and record producer. He also did arrangements on tracks for some of the biggest musical acts um, of the, of the time period. He has something like, uh, 1555 writing and arrangement credits on discogs what including yeah it's like this man worked a lot working with artists i I can't even list them all but just as a brief overview people like barry white james taylor michael jackson Cher. um that was it seems to be the main uh main work that he did this is his most
1: well-known film score out of only a handful of score composition credits I love the music in Blackula, and it works, I think, on every level. Like, there's some just uh, uh, non diegetic background music that, uh, that, you know, uh, it brings the right uh, horror ambiance. But then there is also plenty of funk in the movie, and then even some diegetic on screen band performances that are fantastic as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, we're going to discuss them in just a second, but I, yeah, I will agree absolutely. Wonderful score. It's funky and soulful, blazingly upbeat in places, but it also does get into that what I like to think of as like the horror jazz night gallery zone as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, tweaked with some synth weirdness in places, uh, it really drives some of the creepy moments. Uh, now, the the musical performances uh, that you mentioned, these are uh, performances by the Hughes Corporation. They were a pop and soul trio. Uh, Best known for a hit that would come out a couple years later in 1974, Rock the Boat. I mean, I don't even have to to hum it. You all know it. You've all heard Rock the Boat. Um, At the time of Blackula, they consisted of uh, St. Clair Lee, who lived 1944 through 2011. Uh, This is the vocalist with the headband. H. Ann Kelly, born 1947, and Carl Russell. Uh, I believe he left the group after the movie, but also maybe returned later during a, a time period when they got back together again. Uh, I'm a little foggy on how, how all that works, but they are a lot of fun uh, in their performances in Blackula.
1: They get at least two on-screen musical performances in the film. or is, Are there even more? Uh, they have at least three
3: tracks on the soundtrack. There's There He Is Again, which we'll talk about in a bit. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. There's what the world knows, which is a more soulful, romantic number. And then I'm going to catch you, uh, which is also a really fun song. It's like a cheating heart song, but it's it's really good.
1: There he is again is my favorite because it's it can the lyrics can be read as a song about a vampire.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like it feel, if you're not analyzing the lyrics too closely, like, yeah, yeah, of course, it's about Mama Waldie. It's about uh, this vampire. Um I'll also note there are two tracks on the soundtrack by the 21st Century LTD. Um, this is, uh, or I guess I would say, this, the 20th, 21st Century Limited. Um, Heavy Changes and Main Chance. Uh, these are both romantic numbers, and I honestly can't remember how they're integrated into the film or you know, to what extent they are.
5: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was bought
6: much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
4: So you ride books, Jin. And on the business. I understand now, this is a wise man uh, is a wise woman.
6: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
5: Get down! <laughs>
1: Okay, you ready to talk about the plot? Let's do it. So we open on the exterior of a castle on a dark and stormy night. Rain pours down, battering the castle towers, and bolts of lightning cut through the darkness. And a Chiron text on the screen says, uh, Transylvania, 1780, Castle Dracula. So we cut inside the castle to an ornate dining room illuminated by candles and a roaring fireplace, and Count Dracula is here, and he is hosting a pair of guests after what seems to have been uh, some kind of international diplomatic function, meeting with dignitaries. Now, this Count Dracula is not exactly of the Bela Lugosi variety. He has, he has like longer hair. It's kind of grayish Brown in color and a goatee. He's wearing a black and gold coat over a blue vest with a frilly white cravat. And uh, he is immediately unlikable, smarmy, palpably untrustworthy. And we will soon come to realize racist. He is, uh, he's at first kind of superficially friendly to his two guests and the guests are, uh, Prince Mamuwalde and his wife, Princess Luva, who are royalty from uh, what is initially an unnamed African country, but we will later learn that they are from the Ibani Nation in the northeast of the Niger Delta. Uh, Mamuwalde is dressed in a dark suit with a powder blue cravat, and Luva is wearing a beautiful, elaborate, multicolored dress with beadwork jewelry. So they've just uh, seemingly finished a meeting with an array of diplomats and heads of state from around the world, and Dracula is pouring cognac all around. Memualde and Luva explain to Count Dracula... That they're here for a reason. They are on a mission to gain international ally- allies in support of what seems to be a treaty. Uh, a treaty to do what? Well, Luva pulls out a, a text, uh, a document to present to Count Dracula, and he reviews it. And then he recoils from the document in disbelief. Apparently, this treaty that they're pursuing would bring about the cessation of the international slave trade. Dracula doesn't like this idea. He counters that, uh, he says, surely slavery has merit. And Mamualde raises an eyebrow. He asks how one would find merit in barbarity. But Dracula says, well, slavery may be barbaric from the point of view of the slave, but it holds lots of appeal to the slave owner. And then he transitions to making revolting comments with sexual overtones about how it would in fact be appealing to him to own Luva.
3: Yeah, the the overt racism of Dracula is quite fascinating here. I, I think the film delivers the vibe in a way that a mere summary doesn't really capture. But yeah, this Dracula is in many respects presented as is almost a kind of it's it's he's almost the institution of slavery incarnate. You know, it's it's all done in a few short scenes here, but. You know, he dismisses objections to the practice on economic and sort of this is the world grounds, but quickly slides into increasingly overtly racist rhetoric before directly provoking Mama Waldi by offering in cruel jest to buy his wife. And this then quickly transcends into physical assault, separation, murder, and a curse that transcends human lifetimes. And we also see his aristocratic mass completely slip from Again, from this like snide aristocrat to just absolute evil, cruelty and hunger.
1: Yeah. So at the beginning of the exchange, Dracula is uh, is condescending and smarmy. But it's it's interesting to see how it just flips to overt hostility as soon as he is faced with something he disagrees with. Mm hmm. So, of course, Mamawaldi won't tolerate this shocking behavior from Dracula, uh, but he keeps his composure. He rises from his seat and he, he uh, gathers Luva and says that they are leaving. But the evil count will not allow it. He summons his his minions, his henchmen, to take hold of them and then violence breaks out. Uh, Memoaldi puts up a valiant fight. He uses like improvised weapons from the room. I think he, he grabs a torch off the wall and then one of the henchmen grabs a, a saber off the wall and they fight there in front of the fire. But eventually Memualdi is outnumbered and overpowered by the count's fighters. And eventually, we see the the count's uh, side, including not just like the muscly wrestlers, the, the stuntmen we were talking about earlier, but like a whole coven of looming ghouls and these wheezing hooded blood drinkers, and uh, the, this whole like group approaches Prince Mamuelde and then Dracula exposes his neck and bites.
3: It's all very well done, but I will note that one of the um, vampires in, in that scene uh, does look to be an actual, actual, actual vampire uh, like from the <laughs> apple. She is, she's kind of like wide-eyed and
1: big, big fangs, but, uh, but, but still, uh, it doesn't, doesn't detract from the sequence. But it goes on to a, a horrifying escalation here. So uh, there is an interment scene. Luva and Walde are walled up in a secret room in the castle where Dracula is going to doom Luva to die of thirst and starvation in the room, while Mamawaldi is locked inside a coffin to transform into a vampire and forever yearn for blood that he cannot have. And here Dracula, he... he places a curse, he says, I shall place a curse of suffering on you that will doom you to a living hell. A hunger, a wild, gnawing animal hunger will grow in you, a hunger for human blood. Here you will starve for an eternity, torn by an unquenchable lust. I curse you with my name. You shall be Blackula, a vampire like myself, a living fiend. You will be doomed never to know that sweet blood which will become your only desire. And then, slam slam shut the coffin door they padlock it and they close the wall and the the curse to and Luva are left trapped in this room forever
3: yeah it's it's heavy stuff and, uh, and and it's also worth noting here like this we hear the name blackula here and we'll we'll hear an echo of this later but Mawalddi never in this film self-identifies as blackula like this is the name uttered by Dracula as he curses him
1: Yes. Now, it might seem curious why Dracula is portrayed. uh, Rob, I I bet you picked up on the same thing. He's portrayed not just as being cruel to them, but specifically as having an orientation of vengeance. He is vengeful towards Mama Walde and Luva. And they've done nothing whatsoever to harm him. Like there's no reason for he for him to be vengeful. But I think it fits. It it goes with the theme. Like this is a common posture of of racism. Like vengeance, a, a feeling of need for vengeance in response to nothing.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I I want to again mention that Macaulay is is really great in this sequence. Uh, he continues to to lay on Dracula's evil very effectively and I love the way that they made him up so blood's dripping from his lips after he has fed on mama Waldi and he's taunting Luva um, but it's also draining from his eyes you know like he's like, like like he's he's a vicious beast that's so fatted on blood that his body can't contain it at all anymore and it's just kind of leaking out of every orifice and um, yeah it's just brutal stuff.
1: Well, yeah, and I think the blood running out of the eyes, to me, it is a visual signal to convey hate. Do did, did you get yeah. the same thing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So here we go to the credits. Uh, and again, I love the design of the credits. Uh, there's groovy modern music. There's the animated bat chasing a woman around in the abstract landscape. It's, it's very cool. Uh, after the credits, we return to Dracula's castle, but it's the present. Dracula's house is undergoing an estate sale, and we've got a couple of wholesale antique buyers from America who are here to, uh, they're about to sign the paperwork to buy everything from the castle. The two antique dealers are the characters Bobby McCoy and Billy Schaefer, and these are the characters, uh, I think you alluded to earlier, Rob, who are portrayed as very stereotypically gay, um... Uh, apparently, they don't find out until the last minute that all of the, uh, the stuff they're about to buy belonged to Count Dracula. Uh, the seller is, is worried that this is going to endanger the deal and gives them a discount, but uh, do they really need one? The answer is no, because the Dracula thing is a bonus to them. <laughs> uh, Bobby says, where we come from, Dracula is the creme de la creme of camp. We're going to get a fortune for these things.
3: Yeah, the guy here is was worried about uh, you know about uh, about having to deal with a Dracula refund or or a Dracula discount. He should have been uh, he should have been adding to the price. He should have been asking more for all this Dracula stuff.
1: Billy also says that he has seen all of Dracula's movies, uh, so I think it's interesting. That this like what is the understanding of Dracula in the world of this movie? Here's what it seems to be. First of all, in this movie, vampires are real. Count Dracula was a real historical vampire in the late 1700s, though some modern characters believe he was just a myth. And this character is separate from Vlad the Impaler, who lived in the 15th century. Also in this universe, Dracula exists as a character known in horror films and stories. Presumably the novel Dracula exists.
3: Yeah, it's interesting to tease all this apart. Uh, Rodney Barnes in the in Blackula, Return of the King, uh, the, the way he kind of treated it was okay. Mama Waldie, uh had like knew that this Count Dracula, had, there were some rumors about him about how he might be connected to this earlier uh, tyrannical figure, but he just dismissed it as myth. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, there are multiple layers of fiction and history, and, um, and and fictional history that you have to juggle in this scenario.
1: But it also portrays the historical figure, Count Dracula, in the late 1700s as having been uh, an influential player in international politics. Because, like, uh, the reason Luva and Mamualdi are going to his castle is to get his support for trying to get allies for an international treaty. So he's not just seen as, like, you know, a reclusive figure of mystery. This is like somebody who has influence over the affairs of state.
3: Yeah. uh, like He is not an evil in the background of European aristocracy. He is in the forefront, uh, which which I think is key here. But anyway, he's long dead at this point.
1: Oh, that's right. In fact, the the guy at the estate sale mentions how Dracula died.
3: Yeah. He says, you know, uh, don't worry about him. Uh, It was, you know, all overhyped anyway, and Van Helsing destroyed him 150 years ago. So it's interesting, you know, we're set to encounter a reawakened uh, Mamawaldi in a world where his greatest adversary
1: is is himself long destroyed, but the legacy of his crime still resonates. Right. Uh, So while going around with the cellar, Bobby and Billy in the castle here discover an undisturbed coffin in a hidden room behind a wall. And we see we, the audience, know that this is the room where Memo Walde and Luva were buried alive. So they add the coffin to their hall and we see it brought back to the States via cargo ship. And here we get some uh, a little bit of fish out of time texture. So we see modern streets and traffic and it's set to a funk soundtrack. Uh, We get some, you know, wah-wah guitar. And um, uh, then we see Bobby and Billy get the coffin back to their warehouse. And Billy is discussing the idea of using it as a guest bed at their house. I like this idea.
3: Bobby is doubtful, though. He's, He's clearly doubtful of this idea. But he's like, okay.
1: So they start trying to open the stuff, but before Bobby can get the uh, coffin open, I think he breaks off the lock, but he doesn't open it yet. Uh, At the other end of the room, Billy cuts himself while prying at the lid of another crate, and it seems the smell of fresh blood stirs something inside the coffin. And so while Bobby and Billy are not looking, the lid creaks open, and Mamawalde, now transformed into a vampire, begins to rise. Yeah, this is our first
3: real shot of the awakened Prince Mamawaldi facing the camera. Dracula's curse audibly resonating in his
1: mind. Uh, Pretty haunting stuff. Right. So he rises from the coffin and he he looks almost confused like he's uh, he's changed now, but he's torn between his conscious horror at his fate and his immediate thirst for blood like the, you know, his his conscious mind is fighting the vampire within him. And here might be a good place to discuss Walde's two looks as a vampire. So sometimes, basically, when he's not about to bite someone, he just looks like himself. He looks like the regular Prince Mamawaldi from before. But when he goes into vampire mode, when he is about to bite someone or transform into a bat or something, he grows fangs, of course. But he also grows an interesting pattern of facial hair where it's like his eyebrows become very bushy and they sort of connect to the hair on his temples and his mustache grows out longer and he gains these sharply sculpted sideburns um, and there's a redness added to his eyes. He has, he has a different look when he is about to behave more like a predatory vampire. And the fact that there is this physical transformation is almost a bit werewolfy. I like the visual transformation because it... It, it coincides with the dual nature of Mamualde the vampire so he hasn't been changed into just a demon of pure evil most of the time he is simply like himself like he was before the change and even in the form of even as a vampire Memualde is shown to be a a like good and moral man he is thoughtful kind suave even tempered charming but when he goes into vampire mode he thirsts only for blood and it is almost like a werewolf transformation
3: yeah i think the pronounced widow's peak that he develops when he's in uh, full vampire mode uh, in hunger mode is key and i think the real take home here is if someone you know you suddenly encounter them and they have a pronounced widow peak uh, that that uh, extends um, uh, further down than their hairline originally was uh, then you need to run because that person has become a dracula of some sort
1: so, Memawalde bites and drains Billy and Bobby there in the antique warehouse. And uh, next, we go to a scene at a funeral home, where we're going to meet our other main characters. Uh, so, Bobby's body is lying out for—it's uh, lying out in a coffin for visitation. And somehow Mimewalde is there, like he's looking on from behind a curtain at the back of the room. And slowly we see Bobby's hand begin to move from its resting place and grip the wall of the coffin. But then Bobby stops moving when the living approach. And our living characters are uh, Michelle. This is uh, Denise Nicholas. Uh, We mentioned her earlier. Uh, Michelle's co-worker and romantic partner, Dr. Gordon Thomas. This is uh, Thalmus uh, uh, Rasulullah. We get Michelle's sister, Tina, who is played by Vanetta McGee, the same actress who played Luva. Um, And so uh, Michelle and Tina are visiting Bobby because they've known him since childhood. And at first, Tina is wearing a hood covering her face when she comes into the room. Uh, But there's a reveal moment. She pulls it back to reveal her face. And Mama Walde sees her and he whispers Luva.
3: The hood is almost too much because I initially thought she was going to be some sort of sorceress or cult member or something. But we quickly learned that she's just very stylish.
1: Well, I would say, by and large, all of the modern costumes in this movie are awesome. Like, everybody's clothes look really cool. I was going to mention this later, but... Like essentially everything Thalmus Rasulila wears looks awesome. He has this great collection of of coats and jackets. He has this cool like a uh, uh, herringbone blazer and he has a, a double-breasted jacket he wears later that looks really cool. Often paired with a turtleneck, he, he's got a great look. Um, but uh, Michelle Michelle, and Tina also have really cool clothes. Yeah, absolutely. And I would put the sorceress hood and cloak in that uh, that category as well. I think it looks great. Um, You know, people should dress like sorcerers more often. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Tina and Michelle, they're confused about what happened to Bobby. His death doesn't make any sense. And they're asking Gordon if he can get any answers for them, because Gordon is not just any uh, boyfriend of Michelle. Gordon is is some kind of science cop. We've talked about science cops on uh, weird house before he is a forensic investigator. Uh, We're later told he works for the scientific investigation division, I suppose of the police. So it seems, I I think he's supposed to be a medical doctor at core, but he is, he works as a forensic investigator. Yeah. So after Tina and Michelle leave, uh, the funeral director is there alone with Gordon, and he explains, I worked very hard on that neck wound, trying to make it look as natural as I could, so it wouldn't be offensive to his loved ones. The flesh was just torn right out in a big chunk. I've never seen a rat bite that size. And Gordon says, rat bite? He wants to know, how deep was the wound before it was repaired? And the funeral director says, two or three inches at least. So Gordon is, his, his radar's pinging, something is, is, is seeming off to him, and he's perplexed by what he sees. So a rat bite in the neck, two or three inches deep? He starts looking at other things about Bobby's body. He notices that the body is drained of blood, even though the funeral director says that no embalming has taken place. Uh, uh, G- Gordon points out that the veins collapse under pressure. Why would he have been drained of blood? Gordon decides he wants to see the body of the other victim, but uh, the other victim, Billy, uh, was, is not at this funeral home. He was, uh, he was white, and he was sent to a white funeral home, the uh, funeral director tells us. So uh, our investigator is now on the case. He can tell something weird is up. We cut to Michelle and Tina walking outside the funeral parlor, and they split up because Michelle is going to go visit Bobby's family. Tina is tired, and she wants to go straight home. And while walking alone on the sidewalk at night, Tina starts to become uneasy. Something doesn't feel right. She picks up the pace. She glances around nervously. Then suddenly she comes around a corner and runs straight into Mama Walde. And he's, he's not in vamp mode here. But he is in a full vampire costume, which he pretty much always wears. Uh, so he's, he's in his dark suit. Uh, he's got the cravat. And he's got this trailing black cape. And he addresses her, hopefully at first, saying, Luva? But Tina doesn't know what he's talking about. She, she tries to back away, and he takes hold of her. He says, Luva, it's me. But she doesn't know him. She screams, let go. And he does. She runs away in a panic, and she, she drops her purse in a pedestrian underpass tunnel. And Memo Alde follows and picks up the pocketbook. He's still looking around for where she went, when suddenly he is hit by a cab.
3: I also want to just mention really quickly William Marshall, a very physically imposing actor as well. I, I think he was like 6'5". Mm. So uh, that's, that's notable in all of these scenes where he is either perceived as a threat or is an active threat in vampire
1: mode. That's right, and he is about to change from pining for his lost love to to uh, thirsting for blood because he was hit by a cab. The cab driver gets out, and this is a character named Juanita. She um she she is sort of vulgar and starts scolding Memualde, telling him uh, that chasing tail could get him killed. Mamawalde is very frustrated. He says, I lost her because of you. And they trade insults. And after she hurls some disrespect at him, we suddenly see a change come over him. He needs blood once again. And he transforms into vampire mode and bites her. Now later, uh, Tina makes it back home. Uh, She has to use a hidden spare key to get into her apartment because she lost her purse in the tunnel. And she's extremely rattled. Uh, Michelle comes home and Tina confesses what happened. Michelle... Says, oh, maniacs are running in the streets. And meanwhile, Memualde goes back to his coffin in the antique warehouse, dejected. Uh, he, he's broken by the fact that uh, his luva ran away from him. Now, the next day, we see uh, Gordon Thomas on the case. Uh, the, The doctor is paying a visit to the city morgue to check out the body of a cab driver found dead the night before. And here we meet a minor character, Sam, the morgue worker, played by Elisha Cook, Jr., who is a character actor you've probably seen in lots of stuff. In this movie, he plays a surly mortician with a hook for a hand.
3: Yeah, he lived 1903 through 1995. Probably best known for such films as The Maltese, Falcon, The Killing, House on Haunted Hill, and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I found an image here for you, Joe, from 1944's Phantom Lady, in which he's pulling this shocked face that I'm pretty sure he pulls <laughs> at least once in uh, in this
1: movie. It's his signature look. It's his blue steel
3: Yeah, he's like, oh, and then inevitably he's about to be murdered or has discovered a murder or is about to be killed by a monster.
1: Yeah, or in in these movies from the 40s and 50s, he just saw a skeleton. Yeah. (laughs) So Sam leads Gordon inside. They pull the victim out of the freezer. Uh, Sam's just kind of like gabbing at him. So Gordon has to like get him to leave, leave him alone so he can investigate. And what do you know? he finds bite marks on the victim's neck. This this cab driver was also bitten, just like Bobby. So we know what he's thinking, and we see him reacting to his own thoughts. He laughs and says to himself, come on now, that's ridiculous. But he still, he has to pursue this lead. So Gordon goes to consult with police lieutenant Jack Peters. Gordon says he needs reports on the post-mortem examinations of both Bobby and Billy, the first two victims. But the department bureaucracy is giving him the runaround while he's been looking for these reports. And eventually they admit that the reports seem to have been lost. They don't know where they are. And uh, Gordon says, strange how many sloppy police jobs involve black victims. Hmm. Peters, who uh, who is a white police commander, uh, seems to suggest he's like, hey, what if all these neck bite murders were caused by the Black Panthers? Think about it. And Gordon is like, get real. Uh, So Peter's promises they uh, they will keep looking for the info that Gordon needs. And he puts a cop named Watson on the job. Uh, Gordon explains that if they they find the reports, he'll need them brought by the club tonight because he's going to be at the club tonight with Michelle celebrating her birthday. Oh, and we also see here Gordon wants to do an autopsy on Bobby. So he calls the funeral home and says uh, that he's going to send some cops over after closing to collect the body. So, next comes the club scene, a scene that is great for multiple reasons, one of which is the awesome performance by the house band the Hughes Corporation, who we already mentioned earlier, Uh, but this is a full musical number. We get to see the entire song, full band playing. Uh, There there are three lead singers. There's there's like a singing ensemble in the group and uh, they are awesome dancers. They each have their own like solos and and all that. The song is called There He Is Again and the Hughes Corporation just rocks. I thought this song was killer Um, as we, I, I think we said this earlier but it sounds like the lyrics could be a about the vampire in the film. Uh, so the lyrics are like, there he is again, looking at me from across the street. There he is again, making my heart skip another beat. Uh, there's some line in there. Uh, oh, well, the chorus is look the other way when he comes by you. There's one part where they're talking about how they think he can read your mind. Uh, there's a line where he says, I know he thinks I want his love so much. I love the levels of mental simulation in that. Mm hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah this is my favorite of the Hughes corporation tracks and uh, if I haven't mentioned it already uh, the combined score and soundtrack is widely available on music streaming platforms so you can definitely dip in and get a taste of this uh, it originally came out on vinyl as well but I don't think it's benefited from one of those awesome modern vinyl restorations which which seems like a missed opportunity
1: Oh yeah I mean, this is truly great stuff it doesn't just like work in the movie I'd love to just put this on anytime. Um, So anyway, Gordon, Michelle and Tina are at the club. They're celebrating Michelle's birthday. And Mama Walde arrives, and at first it's like, oh no, but then he meets with Tina, and uh, maybe she's a little apprehensive at first, but he very kindly returns the purse that she dropped the night before, and she rethinks her initial impression of him, and Tina then, surprisingly, invites Mama Walde to join them at their table, and this is not vamp mode, Mamu Walde, obviously. This is evening attire, Mamu <laughs> He is super charming at the absolute height of debonair sophistication. Now it's been kind of a running theme so far that Gordon, despite being our hero in a way, he is somewhat brusque and antisocial. He doesn't exactly play nice with people, he's not polite. The more charitable way of putting this, that I th- is that I think he's very like task oriented, and most yeah. of the time he's all business. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes rough some feathers for sure. Yeah, uh, but his his sort of antisocialness comes through in this scene uh, as well, because Walde sits down and tries to order French champagne, and Gordon is like, "That won't be necessary." <laughs> <laughs> but then the ladies overrule him, so they do get the champagne <laughs> service.
3: Now, side note: uh, This is another scene in a film where they're sipping champagne from coupe glasses, you know, from wide glasses as opposed to flutes. Um, I really need to dive into the history of appropriate glassware for bubbly because I've seen this. I think like we've seen this in some films we've watched on Weird House in HBO's The Gilded Age, which is set in the 1880s. They're also drinking all their champagne out of coupe glasses or Mm -hmm. something very close to a coupe glass. Um, and, And I, I feel like I've always heard that. That, uh, that argument was like, oh, no, you want a narrow glass because, you know, of the way the bubbles form and so forth.
1: Hmm. I feel like coup glasses for champagne uh, have come in and out of fashion over time.
3: It would it would seem to be. But my main area of research on this is <laughs> seeing it in movies that sometimes have vampires in them. So I don't know.
1: Well, anyway, one interesting thing about this scene is that I had expected Mama Walde would be more coy uh, about who he is and his relationship to, to Tina, but instead he comes right out and tells Tina, you bear, an, uh, you bear an amazing resemblance to my wife whom I lost a short while ago. I loved her very much. When you left the mortuary, I had to follow you. I didn't consider that I might frighten you. So leading with you look like my beloved dead wife. Uh, And just judging by the way she looks back at him, I think Tina is already over whatever uh, apprehension she had previously. She is charmed now.
3: Yeah, the film will stress this later, but it's definitely worth noting that she is charmed, but not bewitched. Um, we see either and perhaps sometimes both in different vampire movies. You know, sometimes a a Dracula figure or a vampire lord figure is definitely controlling people and overwhelming their senses. Other times it is more of a, I guess, a pure charisma role. Uh, So, yeah, he is not controlling her. And their connection across time would seem
1: to be legitimate. That's right. And she, she seems to imply in a later scene that maybe she feels this is true as well. Uh, But I guess we'll get there in a few minutes. So, first of all, there's a cutaway to the funeral home where we mentioned that the cops were going to go collect Bobby's body. But when they get there, they, like, throw open the lid to the coffin in the visitation room and the body is missing. Uh, Gordon gets a call at the club reporting this. He has to, like, go up to the bar and take a phone call. And then for some reason, when he comes back to the table for Michelle's birthday party, he shares the news that Bobby's body is missing. (laughs) Uh, and Mama Walde says, perhaps he wasn't dead. And Gordon is like, what does that mean? He was dead. I examined him myself. Uh, and Mama Walde says, i just a passing thought. Uh, but then we get the arrival of Skillet. This is the guy who keeps showing up to, uh, to admire Mamu Walde's cape uh, and to say that he's strange. But Mama Walde is suddenly driven away from the table because a photographer comes by. And as soon as she snaps a photo of their table, Mamualde stands up and abruptly excuses himself, uh, saying that it has been a rare pleasure. Tina chases after him, and then near the door, she catches him to say that she wants to see him again. And they promise to meet again at the club the next night. But the photographer it, it comes barges in one more time and takes a picture of them a second time. This picture is just Mamualde and Tina. And this drives Mama Walde away. He seems alarmed at having his picture taken. So here I guess we should describe... What appears to be the photographer's business model, maybe this is a thing that used to happen, I don't know, but it seems what she does, she she goes around the club taking pictures of people, and then she has a house right next door to the club. And so she runs out of the club next door to her house, develops the photos and makes prints, and then brings the prints back to the club the same night and sells them to people. Is that how you understood it?
3: I think so, yeah. I feel like this might be something that would have been more clear to the audience at the time. And I know, based on conversations with, with my wife, who's, who's a photographer, there they were... um you know, there were all sorts of practices kind of like this back in the day when you had to develop your film. Uh, There was one in particular that involved, I remember hearing about, involved like a zip line. Like they had to like take the photo, get the film, zip line it down to where it was going to be produced. So there are all sorts of things like that that had to occur given the limitations of of film technology. Nowadays, you know, it's all digital. And so you have an entirely different model and everything moves so much faster.
1: The only other way I can understand this is if she's, is if this is not her job and she's just like a, a hobbyist photographer and taking pictures of her friends and happens to live next door to the club. I don't know.
3: Yeah. But the, the real take home here is that it gives us an excuse for a dark room scene, which I absolutely love in my movies.
1: Oh yeah, this is great. So she runs off next door to develop the photos and here we get a vampire attack. And I think a very creepy one at that. So she's in her house. She puts on a record. Music is playing. But other than the music playing, it's very still inside. And she's developing the photos. And she notices when looking at the negatives that Mama Walde is missing from the pictures she took. So it's just like Tina there embracing with no one. And then she peeks out through the curtains of her dark room, And suddenly Mamu Walde is there. In vampire mode, gliding frictionlessly directly toward her, fangs showing. It's a really scary moment.
3: Absolutely, yeah. This is this is this is one of two really good scares in the picture. Uh, this one's probably my favorite.
1: And in fact, this scene develops into a double scare. Uh, no pun intended on develops uh, with the dark <laughs> one, but uh, it's a double scare because shortly after this, a cop shows up uh, because remember Gordon was supposed to get those reports delivered to him at the club. So this cop named Barnes appears uh, to deliver the reports and he's in the parking lot of the club and he sees at the house next door, a woman stumbles out of the front door and she appears to be dying. So he goes to help her. But when he picks her up to carry her inside, fangs, it's the photographer and she has changed rapidly. So in the, 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 The way the mythology, the vampire mythology works here, you can change in, I don't know, it seems like minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it's very viral. So she vamps the cop, uh, and Gordon never gets his reports. (laughs) And he tells Peters as much the next day at the police station. Peters is mad about this. Uh, Gordon wants to get permission to dig up Billy Schaefer's grave to do an autopsy. Peters tries to get a permit for this, but he can't. So then in a very funny turn, Gordon... Uh, he explains to Michelle that they're just going to have to go and illegally dig up <laughs> Billy's body themselves that night. And Michelle is kind of resistant to this idea at first, but he like sweet talks her into it. He basically he, he like kisses her and he's like, come on, do it for me. And she's like, OK,
3: OK, we will go. We'll go violate the graveyard.
1: Um, so that night, while Gordon and Michelle are out digging up a grave, Mamuwalde Walde comes and visits Tina's apartment. He says he couldn't wait to see her, and he needed to speak to her alone. They've been dying to see one another again. And Tina explains her complicated feelings. He frightens her, but also when he left the night before, she wanted to run after him. Uh, So he says he needs to speak to her about something, and she asks, Is it about your wife? And he says, You are my wife. She says, That's impossible, Mamualde. And he says, And yet you believe it. And it seems like she does. She's a bit confused, but he explains, as if she is Luva reincarnated, he explains who they are, uh, that, uh, that they come from the Ibani people and were sent as diplomats to Europe to gain allies who would support their, uh, their protest of the slave trade. And then Mamualde says, on that mission, I myself was enslaved. My wife murdered and I was placed under the curse of the undead. Our assassin was the vampire Count Dracula. Now, Tina protests that Count Dracula is a myth. He, he wasn't real, but Mama Walde explains he was real. Quote, as real as I am now, as real as you are, and as real as my need for you, you are my Luva recreated. Uh, so she asks again what he wants, and he says that he wants her to rejoin him. And it's not spelled out exactly what that means, but it seems that's understood as join him in undeath. Yeah. Now she seems torn, she she wants to, but she's afraid. She says I can't. And then he says, You must come to me freely with love, or not at all. I will not take you by force, and I will not return. I have lived again to lose you twice. And he rises to leave. He goes to the door, but she stops him and asks him to stay. They embrace. It seems she does want to rejoin him, whatever the cost. It's a poignant scene. It is, and it's emotionally complex because you can see in his performance that when they embrace and kiss, that it's not just that he loves her. It's not just that he desires her, but there is uh, there is a feeling of relief. Yeah of like a, of a burden being lifted. Mm. And uh, because I guess, because he won't have to be, be like this alone. Um, And so uh, meanwhile, uh, Gordon and (laughs) Gordon and Michelle are doing their grave digging. Uh, Gordon digs up Billy's grave in the middle of the night while Michelle holds a flashlight. They open the coffin. And what do you know? Billy pops up a full vampire. He attacks (laughs) Gordon. Gordon throws some really good punches some haymakers beats him up with a shovel and stakes him and uh, now it seems Michelle and Gordon have both seen the proof they are definitely dealing with vampires yeah there's no denying it now and Michelle is like oh all those books you've been reading apparently Gordon has been doing a lot of vampire research uh, but Gordon quickly realizes that the other vampire victims will also rise from their slumber and attack, including the cab driver at the morgue. So he calls Sam from a payphone that Sam was. um, What's his name? Uh, Elisha Cook, Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, calls him from a payphone and tells him to take her body out of the freezer so he can come and perform an autopsy with Peters. But also to like leave her in a locked room lock the door and stay away and then gordon goes to pick up peter is to show him the evidence of the vampire menace what's going to happen of course there is a vampire attack so uh, vampire juanita rises from her frozen slumber to attack sam
3: and this is another really well done vampire attack sequence the music is really great uh this, this is this is awesome
1: yeah, it's a it's a creepy unusual shot where the door opens and we see from Sam's perspective he's like at the phone down the hall and she's running directly at the camera in slow motion just eyes wild fangs out.
3: You can imagine this 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 whole sequence playing really well in the theater too because yeah. you get that moment where he almost he has the keys out, right? He's almost going to do it. He's almost going to gonna lock the, the, the body in the room, but then the phone rings. So, yeah, it's oh, like yeah. you can imagine, uh, like, the energy in the theater.
1: Right. No, no, no. Um, so back at Tina's apartment, we see Tina and Mama Walde in bed, and she expresses a desire to join him. But he says that can wait. Uh, now he has to leave before daylight because daylight would be fatal to him. And she tells him that she loves him. Gordon and Peters arrive at the morgue, and they are attacked by the vampire. But Gordon, he's got the he he knows what to do now. He subdues the vampire with a big chunky silver cross. I like this cross; <laughs> it looks really substantial.
3: Yeah, it's really huge. Like it's it, it's not one that you would normally just carry on your person. It l- would look ridiculous on on like a chain around your neck. I'm not sure where he got this.
1: Yeah. Uh, and Gordon explains to uh, to Peters that vampires multiply geometrically. He's done the math. They have to stop this fast. So they put out an APB uh, to look for dead people who have gone missing, like Bobby. And then we get another club scene. I guess it's the mm-hmm. next night, and they're at the club again. The Hughes Corporation is playing again. It's another jam. And uh, Gordon, Michelle, and Tina are sitting around at a table, and Mamu Walde joins them once again. He uh, cheekily orders a Bloody Mary. <laughs> and then Gordon is like, hey, Mamu can maybe you can help me. Are you into the occult? <laughs> it seems kind of out of nowhere, but I think maybe it means, like he's asking him because he wears the cape, so he you know, looks like a vampire, I guess, because of the outfit.
3: And the follow up question, how about the heavy stuff?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Witchcraft, all that. Um, And this is so it turns into a general quiz on the subject of the occult vampires and the devil. And Mama Walde is like, oh, yeah, vampires are the most interesting of all that stuff. (laughs) uh we get another visit from skillet and when he arrives mamu alde leaves and takes tina with him uh more talk about how he wants the cape uh but uh, there there's a little tip off here what happened to the photographer who was here the night before uh, or i guess two nights before maybe Gordon decides to investigate. He goes next door to her house, and there he finds the photos where Mamu is missing. Re- Gordon realizes that he is the vampire he's been looking for. And, of course, this makes him worried for Tina, who just went home with him. So Gordon and Michelle rush to Tina's apartment to rescue her. They bust in Gordon and Mamualde fight, and Mamualde runs off, and the police arrive on the scene, uh, and then there's like a chase. People are running around through alleyways trying to find the vampire, and then he finally appears. Uh, He gets one cop isolated, and he appears in vampire mode and kills the cop. So now Gordon and Peters know who the King Vampire is, but they don't know where he is. So they begin an investigation to find his coffin because, you know, along uh, in in accordance with standard lore, the way you can destroy him is to destroy his coffin, destroy his resting place. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. Especially I like, hunt him out during the day.
1: Oh, yeah. I guess that's the other way is find him during the day and stake him while he's sleeping. Mm hmm. So from here on out, the film becomes a lot more action-oriented. Uh, like, there's a scene where they find Vampire Bobby and trace him back to the antique warehouse. And there's, like, a raid on the vampire nest there at the warehouse. And there's a big fight with uh, uh, Gordon and the other police getting uh, getting ambushed by vampires and in this sort of maze of crates and boxes. And they end up throwing these oil lanterns to fight them off. There are a bunch of, like, uh, person-in-a-fire suit stunts. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a scary moment where you remember the cop Barnes who went to help the photographer at her house mm-hmm. he of course, we saw him bitten, but he 's like one of their investigating party, and of course, he turns on them at the end of this fight. Uh, Mamualde appears and then escapes in bat form by transforming into a bat
3: yeah, and of course, this is a classic bit, right uh, uh, vampire transforms into a bat, but from an effect standpoint. It's kind of a, a daring vampire movie trope to include because I think we've all seen examples of it that look that that, uh, that look a bit silly. Right. You know, you can imagine like here's here's a human poof of smoke and then a floppy bat on a string. Right.
1: It almost always looks silly. I, I'm trying <laughs> to think of a movie where the transformation into a bat does not look silly.
3: <laughs> and, you know, maybe I'm being super generous here uh, because I like so many other things about the picture. But I, I thought this one looked reasonably good considering oh, yeah. what the effect is.
1: This is one of the better ones. I, I like it. Uh, but anyway, this all leads up to a big final showdown, a set piece at a chemical factory, which is where uh, Mamualde's coffin is stored now. So he, Alde takes Tina there uh, and the police give chase And then tragically, while the police are running around in this, uh, in this place, looking through them through these like mazes of pipes and, and, you know, chemical tanks and things, they see the two of them and then a cop shoots at them and Tina is killed. Mm. Horrible tragedy. Tina, and then of course, Mamuelday turns Tina into a vampire because at that point it's the only way to save her. But he is now, of course, furious, and he he yells at the uh, at all of their pursuers through, and it like sort of echoes throughout the entire building, is uh, sort of a curse of vengeance. He says, "This will be your inglorious tomb."
3: Yeah, and then follows it up with, "Your tomb, your tomb, your tomb." And I have to say, this this bit just keeps playing through my mind because on one hand, just an absolutely great moment in the film that drives home just the vengeful power of Vampire Prince Mamawaldi. You know, his enemies here are clearly doomed. They have crossed the line. But it's also one of those bits of dialogue that on paper or coming from a lesser actor, it might have come off a bit silly, a bit fake. But but Marshall absolutely imbues it here with Shakespearean
1: power. It's strong. You can feel his rage, and then it becomes even even worse because uh, so he he turns Tina into a vampire because it's the only way to save her at this point. And then Gordon and Peter's come across the vampire's coffin. They think they've discovered his coffin, and they're going to to stake him to end this. They rip the lid off, throw the stake down, and then they realize they have staked Tina by accident. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess they would have had to stake her either way because she is a vampire now. That's right. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it wasn't what they were intending to do.
3: Yeah. But at, at this point, Mamawaldi shows up, he sees this, and this takes the fight out of him, uh, you know, because this was his whole reason for being. And he, he says as much. There's this great moment where Gordon reaches in to get that big, chunky cross out of his jacket, uh, you know, like he's pulling a gun or something. And Mamawaldi says, that won't be
1: necessary. Right, it's an incredibly sad turn. You can see he's just given up now, and with with his love gone, he surrenders himself to to his ultimate fate, and decides that he is going to walk out into the daylight, which he does. He like struggles. You can see the pain in him, but he walks up the staircase under the roof of the building and bathes himself in sunlight, and then collapses dead. And then we see a. Uh, like his his skin rots away and turns to worms and uh it's a very bleak and tragic ending there's not really anything there's not really anything happy to redeem it that that comes back you just end on this moment of of absolute loss and uh and yeah I don't know what to say about that it's it's one of the bleakest endings i can think of
3: yeah i mean i wouldn't want it any other way you could imagine cuts of the film where you could have had something different like you know the sort of like police chummy chummy uh having that moment where they're like hey well we at least we stopped the vampires it's sad but uh the good guys won or you could have gone in an entirely different direction that also wouldn't be out of keeping with other films and just just cut back to the hughes corporation doing another number you know and just sort of almost like insisting on a change of of pace but they stick to the the ending here and the last thing we see is the skull of mama waldi Now, a quick note about the fate of Mammaldi here in the film. The main poster for Blackula features an image of him being staked, Um, an image that appears to be very um, uh, manipulated. Like, it's not—I don't think it's a shot from the film. Uh, And this, this of course, is dumb, but in line with plenty of other vampire movies and trailers that show the movie's main vampire being staked. Um,
1: (laughs) If that were true, it would seem to be a spoiler— and yeah, but it
3: but again it wouldn't be out of line with marketing for other vampire films.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's not even true in this case. He does not get staked. He he just surrenders himself to death by the sun.
3: Yeah. But it, it makes me wonder like was this like I wonder of like what what stage in production the poster was made and maybe at one point he was the character was going to be staked and William Marshall was like, "No, that's not going to work for me," and and if that's the case, I applaud him for sticking to his guns and going and and pushing for this ending.
1: So I guess that's Blackula, a, a a really good tragic romance and a really good horror movie too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was uh I, I was really impressed with it on the whole. Uh, so. Uh, As always, we'd we'd love to hear from folks out there. If y'all have any thoughts on the film, um, any memories of uh, seeing it uh, originally for the first time or revisiting it and so forth, Uh, everything is fair game. Uh, just want to remind everybody that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do a listener mail episode on Mondays. We do a short form episode on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see a complete list with thumbnails or posters of all the movies we've considered so far on Weird House Cinema, well, you can go over to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username is Weird House. We have a fabulous list there. You can everything we've done sometimes there's a peek ahead at what's coming next and you can sort by genre now i don't think you can go so specific as to just say show me only the vampire movies but you know you could you can set it to horror and then figure it out on your own Uh, i don't know how many vampire movies we've done at this point but uh, we've done a few, and uh, we'll do a few more, I'm sure.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your,
0: blow your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them.
2: I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin.
1: And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level.